Hello and welcome to another episode of the Snellview Auto Show. I'm Sean Smith and I've got a cold. But that's okay because I'm not doing much of talking today because uh, Sam Green Hello. is going to be doing uh, part two of our LMP sort of memorandum looking back at, through, through the history of the LMP class as it slowly now dies to death. Uh, joining us today is Alistair Walker. Good evening all. And the Montosaurus, Monty Monty. Did you just say good evening? Hello, everyone. Sorry, Al, did you just say good evening? Yeah, I always say a time of day, and it's never the correct one, so I, I'm just sticking with it at this point. I, I mean, given that this is a, a recorded thing, then it's kind of you're guessing that the person that's listening to this is listening to it in the evening. As they say, Monty, it's always six o'clock somewhere. I think it's five o'clock, and that's in reference to alcohol, but either way, cheers. Anyway. Equally, it's 26 past one in the afternoon. <laughs> so, so uh, following on from my brilliant choices last time, uh, let's see, which, which included cars such as the Bicoles, the longest serving car that I could think of. The, uh, that was just because I couldn't afford to replace <laughs> it. The Penske Porsche, which was the best LMP2 car of all time. Uh, what else did I have? I can't remember. Uh, the triple three SP, which was the best Ferrari LMP of all time, because they even though it went better without a Ferrari engine Shh, in it, Monty, and was built by Delara. Monty, yeah. you, ha you had the chance to be in the last one. You weren't there. It's too late now. I was there. Or may were you? I was there. I was ripping the shit out of you for the for that <laughs> choice of car then as well. well. I'm just reminding people about it. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, Sam. It's over to you now, mate. Uh, you got to okay. try and try and top those, which I don't think you will. I hundred percent have because <laughs> I have chosen these ones, and they're much, much better. Cool. Would you like now, your have... opinion? Uh, well, it's up to you. It's your I'll, show. I'll, uh, I'll put that timer on, and then if it overruns, never mind. Three, two, one, go. Okay. First car is the Lola Aston Martin B0960, which is the more commonly known as Aston Martin's LMP1. Whoa. Um, yeah, well. it did run under Aston Martin's entry and had their engine and their colour scheme, but it was still very much a Lola chassis. Yes, it, it was, was kind of like a DPI before people realised you could do that. Yeah, it kind of was actually thinking about it. it was, and it was it had those sort of styling cues in it, like the Aston Martin style front grille and <clears> things like that. It was um, a lot more successful than their next attempt, but <laughs> yes. the less um, said about that, the better. It, I just, it was. Um, a 6-litre V12. You don't get that very often anymore. 650 brake horsepower. Um, finished 6th at 2010 Le Mans. Um, that was its best result at Le Mans. But it did have a few race wins. It had 9 wins from the 27 races it contested. I think that's globally. Because it mostly ran in the LMS series rather than... <clears throat> Although LMS is that precursor to yes. World Endurance. Yeah, the Le Mans, uh, the Le Mans series. No, it was sort of... It was the European Le Mans series before they yeah. called it the European, which then morphed into the Intercontinental for a year, which then became the WEC. Yes. Right. Because yeah. I spent too much time watching sports cars. That's, that's all right, because I spent all my time watching it at the time. It was great, because you had, like, Silverstone, you had 4,000 people, and that was considered a good crowd. Yeah, yeah it, it's a car I remember very well from being at Le Mans, because it had such a beautiful noise. They basically... Yeah. Incredible. They pulled the engine out of the DBR9 GT1 car, popped it in the back of a Lola that they bought, and modified the bodywork a little. Yeah, and because of that, like Al said, it sounded brilliant. It revved very, very high, because it's a V12, and that tends to be what they do. And I just think it looks really cool as well in that golf colour scheme that they ran it in. 
Um, be honest, I was never a fan of the golf colours. Oh, but come that's... on. On that car? I think this is a well-noted thing at this point. I find golf colours in motorsport a little overdone and very rarely done well. No, I get your point. I do get your point. I just think it suited the car really well. Um, I mean, at the time, they they were they running. They were must have been running a, a golf coloured GT car as well. I would have thought. Yeah, they? they'd been running so. one in the years previously. So in two thousand and nine, in GT one. So this was. I think it was Aston Martin working out what to do next because at the time GT one was dying a death. Mm. Um. Because I think 2010, when the Lola Aston Martin ran, it was the final year of GT1 at Le Mans, and then it just kind of limped on in the background in places. So yeah, they were working out what to do next. Didn't really fancy the move to GT2 yet, but eventually would, and decided they'd try their hands at prototypes. And yeah. as I say, gorgeous sounding car. Out-qualified one of the Audis, I seem to recall, at Le Mans. I think when it lined up for the 2010 race, one of them was fifth on the grid. Um, I mean, so. To be fair, not, the no. Audis were never actually that quick in qualifying. They were much better race cars than they were qualifying cars. But it, it at least seemed to be a promising sign of some pace. But unfortunately, it didn't quite pan out that way. Mm. I also very distinctly one of, remember one of these in... Ooh, I'm to... The year is escaping me now. I think it might have been 2010 again. Lost the one of the banks of cylinders on the run down to Mulsanne and Arnage um, towards the end of the race. Because two of the Peugeots did it and one of the Aston Martins did it all at about mm. the same place on the track within about a two and a half hour space of each other. I'm just looking at the qualifying result for 2010. They didn't actually manage to out-qualify one of the works Audis. What they did out-qualify was Bicoles. Mm. Oh, was it the R10? Yeah, yeah it was the R10. Yeah, um, yeah it, it would have been from the team that doesn't so matter to anyone apart from Sean. <laughs> yeah. But they managed to basically, yeah, they beat Coles and Rebellion, who realistically, well, uh, and one of the... Um, oh, no, that's one of the... I want to talk about um, that. Orica 01s as well. Fun fact with Aston Martin is that they were, of course, uh, teamed up with the team which would eventually become Rebellion Racing, which was Speedy Sabath. Yes, which was 2009, which was the precursor to mm. the car Sam's chosen, yeah. which was the Aston Martin engine fitted to a Lola chassis, but without any unique bodywork. So it was just a completely standard Lola. Mm. Is that the car I'm thinking of that beat that one was, of the Audis? It might maybe. be. That was the BOA60, which was... These. Yeah, it was the precursor car to this. Course, very they, much, I this, think, laid the foundations for this. These cars, of course, were like towards the very end of Lola's existence, of course, which was very sad in itself. But uh, the car was always, yeah. I think, help. It was in the era where the diesels were the dominant force in, in Le Mans. Um, you had basically the works teams of Peugeot and Audi be ahead of them, but you did have the likes of eventually Rebellion, you had the Aston Martin, you had Pescarolo still existing, but we'll get to them. Um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. My issue with the Aston Martin, though, it was a nice car, it looked nice, it sounded nice, but for me, kind of, it's a classic British entry 
inter motorsport events. They've produced a car which is really good for the previous era, but everyone else has moved on to what the current regulations are doing now. And that's my issue because we already, by this was what, the late 2000s, Audi had moved on to turbo diesel, as had Peugeot. There were a lot more benefits uh, from a regulation point of view to running the turbo diesel. So why would you go and commit to a V12 uh, petrol when the regulations were pushing you into a completely different direction? This would have been good five years before. Yeah, I think probably probably it was a case of one, Aston Martin didn't want to do diesel and and two... (laughs) Well, there was also an interesting bit to the regulations that I seem to recall at the time which was there was meant to be some sort of equivalency between GT1 and LMP1 engines and GT2 and LMP2 engines. And I think there were some regulatory advantages in both prototype classes at the time to using a production-based engine. Yeah, if you had a production-based engine, uh, they allowed you to use larger air restrictors. So I can see from that point of view, just by moving the V12 over from there... Well, that would have been their DBR9, I guess, back then. Mm-hmm. Um, moving that engine into a, a Le Mans car, then, yeah, that's going to give them a, an extra bit of horsepower. But we must be talking about, what, maybe 30, 40 horsepower tops? Whereas still the turbo yeah, diesel I'm... was giving people an... Well, it wasn't really horsepower it because... Torque. Yeah, it was loads of torque. Oh, yeah, it definitely wasn't the right car for the time. It was a nice... It was a nice enough car, but it wasn't the right car for the time. And it I was think... the best sounding car for the, at the time, though. So, yeah. It definitely was, but I mean, that's not difficult when <laughs> from the outside, the Audis and Peugeot didn't make a sound, and from the inside, they sounded like a transit in second climbing a hill. You could hear and the I... Peugeot. Just. You couldn't. You could. The, compared to the Audi, it, it, it was a little louder than the Audi, <laughs> but both of them basically just whispered past. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, that's well. The um, Audi—that that, that was literally it. All you heard of the Audi was it going over rumble strips. Yeah, yes. It's a freaky well, car. Great car. It was a very and, freaky I mean, car. To be honest, we're probably getting to a point where that is with electric racing, but it was weirder at the time because at the time, electric cars were nowhere near being ready for that kind of thing. No, and mm. everyone had this association of, I think, still at the time that diesels were old rattly things that your grandmother drove and there was a diesel (laughs) winning the world's biggest sports car race and doing it without making a single sound Mm, yeah it's a shame shame Aston Martin haven't uh, carried on with a V12 to this day but you know thank you last draw Yes, well, you know, Um, uh, that's progress and the future for you. I'm just having a look at the drivers that uh, drove this car. You've got Thomas uh, Inger, Darren Turner, Adrian Fernandez, Vanya X. Sorry, I I pronounced her wrong. Have I? I pronounced that wrong. Vanina X. Sorry, I'm uh, being dyslexic today. Yeah, she didn't drive one of the work cars. I think she drove in 2011 for a private team. I remember the livery. It was a silver car, but I cannot remember the entrant for it, unfortunately. Yeah. Was it Muscle Milk? No. No, Muscle Milk ran... I'm pretty sure they ran one in the US briefly, back when you could run LMP1s in the US. Could it have been Signature Plus? Maybe. It doesn't matter. Probably, yes. That does sound about right. But yeah. (laughs) 
So we're going to say, good choice, Sam. You, 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 got, you. you got down the unsuccessful, but everyone loved it route, which is always yes. good. Which gonna... is basically just British motorsport <laughs> 90% yeah. of the time. Yeah, and I'm going to carry on down that street and reach the end of it with the next car. Oh, God, here oh we go. God. What's next, Sam? Here, here we go. So this next car, it, it took part in one race. It <laughs> DNF'd in all three of the entries. Um, and But I think it looks cool. It's a cool car, and it's probably famous most of all for the crash that it had. <laughs> we should say in advance, these aren't necessarily the greatest cars of the LMP era. These are just no, this is, are just, this is just us rem reminiscing on all of the LMP cars, regardless of their brilliance or, or not. Yes, and I, this is the one I wasn't sure if Sean would let me use, because it's <laughs> technically not sure if it counts as an LMP, but I think it does. It's a Mercedes CLR LMGTP. Yeah, an interesting choice of car, considering it is famous for being a failure. And yeah. I did, I've read some very interesting things about it in the years since. That Essentially, their hunt, I think, for this ultra-low-drag car kind of led them to ruin. But yeah, it, it definitely is a prototype, because it's not related to the CLK GTR, which ran at Le Mans the year before in 1998, which mm. actually was a GT1, but let's face it, those GT1s were not GT cars. Um, <laughs> but yeah, which, interestingly enough, also failed terribly at Le Mans. Yes. So God, now, so, for those who don't know, tell the story of... Uh... It's a 5.7 litre V8, just to start with, which sounds pretty cool as well, just Big, big V8, as we know, Mercedes always do. Um, and yeah, as Al said, definitely a full-on prototype with some Mercedes badges on it. Um, essentially, this is the car. Everyone who's into motorsport probably has seen the crash of the uh, the CLR flipping on the Molzahn and landing in the trees. Um, what, twice? Well, it yes, it, happened, it actually happened well, three yeah. times. One landed in the trees, one landed upside down on its roof on the track after practice, and I think the final car was just withdrawn from <laughs> yeah, the race yeah, at that point. So, yeah. so what actually seemed to happen, well, I did, did a bit of research on this, and in qualifying, yes, Mark Webber flipped the car um, in an area where there was no TV cameras, so he's done that quite well. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that was the one that ended up um, sliding down the road on its side, mostly, and then it came to a rest on its roof. It then happened again to Mark Webber in the warm-up, mm -hmm. um, where, yep, that, that was then the end of that car. I didn't have time to repair it. And then in the race, it happened again um, to... Uh, who was Peter Dumbrack at the wheel at the time, which is and the very the famous one. one where it's following the Viper yeah. and the other CLR. I yeah, thought, that thought, was live on TV. Following, following the CSO20. I think it was following a CSO20, having just lapped the two hmm. yeah, GTs. Was, I actually um, have some of the footage up in front. So it was following hmm. a CLR, the TSO20, a V12 LMR, and one of the Vipers of Team Orica. Yeah. Now, that yeah, one didn't yeah. happen on Musan. That one happened uh, on the second street heading towards yeah, uh, the Virage, wasn't it? Yeah. It was coming towards Indianapolis, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, it happened there, and he flipped, I think it was two backflips, two and a half somersaults, um, but no pike, uh, uh, and landed in the trees, and upright, to be fair. 
Uh, <laughs> what the, what Interesting it? side note I'd like to share on this um, for those into Formula One, and this will probably come as a surprise to Sam and Sean to hear me mentioning this. I do remember after the issues in qualifying, they brought in an aerodynamicist to try and do some emergency fixes to the car, ah, which was Adrian Newey. I know the story. Yeah. yeah. And part of me can't help wondering, considering Mark Webber flipped twice in this car, if when he was driving <laughs> Mr. Newey's car in Formula One, because he yeah. very famously backflipped at Valencia, didn't he? Yeah, yeah that was kind I of... I can't help wondering if the words going through his mind were, damn it, Newey, not again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so something guys. about Adrian Newey's a surf, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I just think it's a very cool looking car. It sounded pretty cool. Uh, from all the videos I've seen of it. But yeah, the third one in the race after the second car flipped through the trees that decided, let's just give it this one a miss. And we got, they, the had, they had to keep one for eBay. Well, oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah had to exactly. put something in the museum, didn't they? Hmm. Um, well, that eBay existed at the time, but they had to future-proof it, didn't they? Yeah, they did yeah. exist, but okay, fine. Whatever. Um, what? Did it? Yeah. Oh, eBay, right. eBay's 95, mate. Is it? Yeah. Before, I've well, just well, learned well, something new. Well, there you go. Sorry, but the I think the biggest problem with this car is that everybody always mistakes it for the CLK. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I the know thing you is, mean. when you look at them side by side, they are very different cars. Although, yeah. to be honest, the design of it can best be described as what happens if I leave a model kit of the CLK <laughs> GTR on a radiator overnight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it that's not to take away from it. It is. It's clear what they were going for. They were going for this ultra sleek, ultra aerodynamic car. Mm. I think that was part to... of its issue as well. Is it had a shorter wheelbase than a lot of its rivals? I think to get more front and rear underfloor aerodynamics. Yep. I think that's actually part of what caused its severe aerodynamic instabilities. I mean, the joke. Oh, that's exactly what happened because um, the second it started following another car. Uh, there was too much pressure going underneath, and that's what made it take off because it wasn't sucking anymore. It was just pfft, had to push itself up. Well, the it was basically creating thrust, wasn't it? Yeah, it went from creating downforce to creating lift, which those of you familiar with the dynamics of a race car, you don't want it to create lift. No, no if, if you're on an aeroplane, you'll want this car. So, uh, incidentally, uh, shout out to my old uh, Formula student team for uh, creating an aerodynamic <laughs> kit on our uh, car once upon a time, which uh, produced more, uh, sorry, less downforce once we installed it, put it in the wind tunnel, compared to that time when we ran the car in the wind tunnel um, without any wings. That is lift, my friend. <laughs> well, the joke um, is with this car that it had very good rolling resistance. Ah, yes. <laughs> Well, no, it rolled very well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, they did, they did 35,000 kilometres of testing with these cars and had no major failures. Yeah. Well, the thing is, a lot of the time when you do those tests, the cars are running in isolation. Yeah. yeah. yeah this this is, problem yeah, really sure. was a problem with dirty air. Absolutely. And Le Mans was the first race they took it to. So it was really simply the first time it had been on circuit with anything other than maybe another Mercedes CLR. And the first time they probably would have been testing at speeds over 200 mile an hour in reality. Well, they, did, they did quite a lot of testing in America. Um, and um, let me try and find where the circuits were. Uh, I mean, there's not, other than Daytona, you probably can't get one of these cars up to they, its maximum speed in America a lot of the time. A road Atlanta, um, 
and at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, which I presume would have been low drag oval testing, presumably, because the, the infield would be far too small, I would have thought. Mm. Um, so potentially maybe getting up towards 200, but I don't know. It's difficult to say. It's quite a yeah, it's nice. definitely an interesting choice of... Uh car for this feature yeah i mean it's a memorable one i think yeah, we can definitely say that it's a very a memorable very memorable car. one it's just a shame because you know its predecessor was based off the cok gtr that obliterated that series so i can understand why they went oh, okay well, let's just get a proven thing and yeah. make it better didn't it... obliterate lamar no, obliterated it... the fia gts with i believe a v12 in it but when they ran it at lamar it yeah. ran with the same engine, I believe, as the later Group C cars, or a variant thereof. Right. And I believe they all failed within three hours of the start of the race. Unfortunately, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's... They've had a very troubled time at Le Mans, Mercedes, in all honesty. That's and... putting it mildly. <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, besides the obvious memories of 1955, they had to withdraw the Mercedes the Sauber Mercedes cars from 1988 because of tyre failures. Mm-hmm. And they yeah, won in 89, didn't they? They did win in 89. And then, yeah, had terrible luck in the 90s. So. Mm. I think it's time for Mercedes to return to Le Mans. I don't, I don't think they will. I don't think so. They're too committed to Formula E they're, now. Well, it's more the fact that they've, they know they're cursed at that track, so... Yeah, they kind of are cursed in all yeah. honesty at the moment. Germans don't believe in curses. I think don't Mercedes have a few reasons to believe it, though. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> the, one thing that's interesting with this car, as, as gorgeous as it is, and as you know, potentially good it was, um, it's very much been sort of scrubbed from a lot of history. Like you don't, Memory. you never see it in games, for example. You never see it on a set of course or. or no, you something. always see the CL cat. Yeah, you never yeah. see this Which, car. as Monty said, dominated the FIA GTs. There is actually one or two third party versions of the hmm. CLR kicking around, but yeah, no one ever has it as a first party addition to it. Yeah, if anyone wants a download link uh, for the CLR, uh, you can find it on uh, the uh, dev page for a flight simulator. It's uh, a good experience <laughs> there. <laughs> <laughs> that was good news. I like that. <laughs> right. Um, sure, appreciate I was going to say, I think that probably leads us on to another, another much car. loved but unsuccessful. Actually, this one was relatively successful, I yeah. think, but we'll let Sam. Sure. It's um, the Pescarolo 01. Oh. Now, this is arguably the main reason I picked this is because it was kind of the first sort of Le Mans car I was kind of aware of as a kid because it was on Gran Turismo, essentially. Um, was it? Which one? It was on it, Gran Turismo 3. The C60 was. Yeah, no. C C60, Pescarolo C60 was on uh, GT3 and 4, I think, but uh, the Pescarolo 01 came after that, didn't it? Um, it did indeed. So... The C60 was originally designed by Courage. Pescarolo had some, and they made enough modifications to the chassis that I think it was there was a second homologated version, which was the Pescarolo C60. Mm. And then the evolution of that was the Pescarolo 01. Um, <clears throat> yes, that's right. Which then eventually became the Morgan, 
under Oak yeah. Racing, which now produced the Ligier cars. So oh, nice. Very long and storied history of that kind of DNA of car. You are right, though. I but yeah, so I think you may have actually so picked do, not do, the car you do, remember. Do you want to try that one again, Sam? <laughs> yeah, yes. Shall we try that choice. one again? Uh, so my third choice is the Prescarolo, the Pes Pet. Oh, hang on, you done well here, mate. <laughs> the, Pes the Pescarolo C60. Ah, okay. So really, where, where, did you, where did you hear about that, Sam? Uh, well, it was the first Le Mans car I was really aware of when I was a kid, <laughs> and it was because it was on the Gran Turismo. Oh, right. Yes, I remember it well. Gran yeah, Turismo so, Four. Good choice, Sam. Very good choice. Yeah. It was uh, famously yeah. not as good as the Audi. Yeah. Although, yeah. well, <laughs> I think it was... But on Gran Turismo, it was better because you had a choice of Judd or Peugeot engines. Yes, very true. Yeah, yeah. I, I seem to remember from... It was in the era just before I started really following sports car racing properly. But I seem to remember this car. It was one of the last sort of private cars mm. ever to have a real shot of winning Le Mans. I think it did mm. push some of the later out iterations of the Audi R8 quite hard for the win at Le Mans. To be fair, the Audi R8 and, was like seven years old by that point. Mm. Yeah. And, I think it was 2004 it gave it a good run. Yeah, exactly. It was It was in that point where Audi weren't actively competing. People were still using their car, but it was still I mean, it was a works LMP car, even if it was a year or two old at that point. Yeah. It was still a dangerous force to go up against if you're anyone else. Mm. And I think the thing that people remember with the Pescarolo is they were just such a fan favourite of people's because Henri Pescarolo had been kicking around Le Mans for basically forever at this point and had driven just about everything. Did he win Le Mans Pescarolo yes. as a driver? He did. I'm pretty sure he won at it least... alongside Hill. Yes, he did. Henri Pescarolo uh, won it back in 72 with Graham Hill. Yeah, so he helped the only gentleman that's ever won the Triple Crown of Motorsport to that crown. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. They, they were yeah, a very, it, very good team. And it was definitely... Pescarolo was the Le Mans team. They were based at the Le Mans Techno Park, if I recall correctly. And for mm -hmm. those of you that have been to Le Mans and know it, if you're walking up at the area behind the pits where some of those big campsites are, there's a big industrial estate the other side of the road that's where Pescarola were based mm. so they're very much at home at Le Mans yeah. really. it's not only their uh, national home race it's their local race as well I was yeah, say so you had uh, I think especially when they're running with the Peugeot engines you had just about every French sports car fan were cheering very for crazy them. So for was, them yeah it was the French engine the French car the French national motorsport hero going for it and i think they came they pushed audi hard and it was a lovely looking car hmm. yeah. the i think they had more success with the judd engine though the the Peugeot was a turbocharged thing but the judd was um an nav10 i think yeah and, turbo uh, engines around this era still had a lot of issues to them there was a lot of unreliability we saw it quite often in lmp2 with the aer units <laughs> don't, talk, don't talk to me about that, about that engine <laughs> um particularly as well if it's coming from a french supplier sorry persia but uh, you're not exactly renowned for your good engines now are you oh my god so i've just looked at a picture of the car and um it, it's exactly how i remember it looking like on gran turismo 
But I remember on Gran Turismo, the car just had PlayStation and Gran Turismo 4 labelled everywhere on there. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, fake sponsors because, you know, you can't do tobacco and stuff like that. No, they actually had the Gran Turismo 4 logos and PlayStation logos written all over it yep. yeah. uh, in real life as well. Along with oh, uh, yeah, it will be PlayStation 4 now, won't it? Oh, God, how time moves. Oh, I'm yes, so happy it's... to see that. <clears throat> it did, I'll say, it was sorry. a lovely car. As Sam said, and it did have some success. So obviously, did. Audi didn't turn up to the 14 wins that the Pescarella had in seven pole positions. I was saying, seven <laughs> poles, 14 wins from nearly 50 or 49 races. So, um, but yeah. Yeah, it was also, it had success, to my knowledge, in the dying days of the FIA Sports Car Championship. So we discussed this series last episode with the 333 SP. Because it was primarily designed for that series. Mm -hmm. This was a car going the other way. It was primarily an LMP car. But I think with a couple of aerodynamic tweaks, they entered it into some world sports car races. Mm. And I think did fairly well at them. Yeah, I think... I'm just having a look at here. I'm just looking at their list of drivers again. The, particularly the hybrid version they had for 2005 and 2006. It was a pretty handy ah. tool uh, to have, wasn't so, it? So this is... An interesting thing to remember, if I'm not making a mistake here, that hybrid isn't the hybrid we're thinking of. It's not a hybrid drivetrain. Mm. It's a regulatory hybrid yes. between the LMP900 regulations and the, at the time, incoming LMP1 regulations. You see, so ladies and gentlemen, oh, go on. Yeah, so it was a chassis primarily designed to the LMP900 regulations, which had then been adapted to allow it to meet some, if not the majority, of the LMP1 rules. But I think it was referred to as a hybrid because I'm not 100% sure it met every LMP1 rule. Correct. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this is the joys of uh, the English uh, language, is that uh, with each generation, a word will have a different meaning for them. We kind of associate hybrid as meaning now powertrain and uh, its parts, electric parts, uh, petrol, whatever. Um, 20 years ago, arguably, you would say that a hybrid car was because it was a mixed mash of different parts or... Um, in this case, to appease two different uh, rules simultaneously, but not really meeting them at well, the same time. As George Bush said, the French don't have a word for entrepreneur. Merde. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, I, yeah, I can believe that. In 2006, it was kind of um, grandfathered, essentially. Isn't it? Yeah. Is that, that's basically what we're saying. And it was allowed yeah. to race as an older spec car. But it did have some wins in 2006. It won the 1,000 kilometres of Donington. Yep. Which is an event I'd quite like to see come back. Who else did that? That would be good. And um, uh, the 1,000 kilometres of Jarama. Harama. 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 You amplified ourselves. Harama. Harama. Lovely track, Harama. Think, think of it as Fajito or Fajina. It's Harama, okay? Vegeta. Uh, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> That's probably my favourite Spanish track, actually, for it, it is quite, yeah. It's an interesting one for sure. Um, oh, they also won 1,000 kilometres of Istanbul, according to this, that year. Cool. And Spa. Yeah, I think look, and, it was uh, also a bit of a lull. I think it was right as Audi was starting to get to grips with the R10, and I think a lot correct. of their time was spent in the US. Mm. Yep. Well, that was famous, yeah, wasn't it, it later was. on, that the R10 and the 908 would only ever meet at Le Mans. 
um, because they both like refuse to go, to go anywhere near each other um, from the rest of the season. But it's interesting. It's it's good. You know, the C60 and Pescarello and and Courage in general uh, quite. Um, they deserve a lot, of, wanted, a lot of credit. For, okay, for I wanted to get a mention in for that basically because it was. One of the cars that, yeah, sort of introduced me to sports car racing okay. as opposed to just being single-seater cars or touring cars. And it was the one, you, the 2004 effort with the C60 was probably Pescarolo's high point, I'd say, in their time as a team. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It probably is their, their greatest hour. Fastest of the non-Audi runners mm. is how it's described. That yeah. it, that is literally the best title you could go for in the <laughs> yeah. early two thousands if you weren't you Audi. Say, you say the early two thousands. Or to be fair, even until about twenty fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, um, move along again. So speaking of Audi, let's talk about their cousins. Well, I was actually going to just talk about Audi. Okay, fine. Want. Well, you know, if you want to go off your list, Sam, feel free. I am. I'm going to go off my <laughs> list, and we're going to go with the Audi R eighteen. Um, which I think Sean mentioned last time. So uh, I chose quick question. not to have that car. Which R eighteen? Now I've chosen the R eighteen Etron Quattro, which no. is twenty fifteen spec. Um, because that is the one with the flywheel accumulator Wait. system, which is an interesting. Do you say twenty fifteen spec? Um, yeah. Were they still using a flywheel by 2015? Yeah. Because that's the... 2015's the ugly version, isn't it? <laughs> 2015's the high nose one. Um, yeah, it's the ugly one. Yeah, but I quite like it. Yeah. I think it looks well, cool. So, for the listeners' benefit, for those who are less familiar than ourselves with some aspects of sports car racing, Audi had the R10, then they had the R15, then they had the R18. No, they're the R15+. plus. Yes, they had the R15+, Plus, but I wasn't including it. Um, <laughs> anyway, they then decided when they were going to do a major change to the way they built the structure of their car that it was going to be the R18 Ultra. Yep. And then they decided when they designed a completely new car from the ground up that it was going to be the R18. And Yay. Yeah, and they're John, basically no. stuck with that name forever. Yeah, Peugeot did the same thing around this period, or just before this period as well, and that always confused me, but yes. <laughs> so, right, I thought you were talking about the 2012-era car, the original Tron uh, Quattro, not the no. later. So this is Audi's last the hurrah. Last yes, exactly that. Um, and it's also one of the first LMP cars I saw racing at Le Mans, having gone to the 2015 race with yourself, Alistair. Um, and it's obviously the team that, if you remember, I was supporting at that race. What, did you have a hat? I did have a hat, yes. I think um, I remember the hat, because you also ended up meeting um, Alan McNish with your hat on, didn't you? I, I did, I certainly did, and that was a, a high point of the whole week. Well, it was more, more of a low McNish point, surely, because he's quite short. No, it was a high, it was definitely a high point. <laughs> it was very cool to meet Alan McNish. Um but no, it's just I think it's a cool looking car. It looks like a rocket ship because all of the LMP one cars of that era kind of did. Um and it was obviously absolutely rapid. Um used that flywheel still, but it made um where is it? It was seven hundred kilojoules energy output, which is 
quite a lot. Yeah, but the Audi was always famously the weakest of the three. Uh, it was. It to... Yeah, well, this is the interesting thing about Audi at Le Mans, especially they kind of flipped their whole way of being when they entered the diesel era. And I'm actually somewhat surprised you didn't go with the 2014 version. I was surprised car, you didn't anyway. go 2011, which was the best of Le Mans ever. Anyway, we'll... Um, yeah, Audi's <laughs> way of winning Le Mans was not by being the fastest car on the track. It was by it not by... Toyota. <laughs> <laughs> you had to get it in, didn't you? You had to get it in. I had to get it in. I mean, in. <laughs> Toyota do have a habit of Toyotaing Le Mans where they can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory at the last possible moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Audi's way of winning Le Mans was always, and I think the best way I can describe their race strategy was to be perfect. Yeah. You so could have set your made... watch to Audi's pit stop strategy. They were, they may not have had the fastest car on the track, but arguably they were the best team. Yes, which they had was the best all round package. They're good, yeah. a good enough car and a perfect team. Um, but um, and that worked perfectly until Porsche came along. Well, but, it took uh, it took Porsche years to get there, but we'll we'll move on to that in a minute. We we certainly will. Um, this is you see this is all segueing, Sean. I know it's, it's very good. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I'm hosting this better than you did. Yeah, but uh, um, whatever. <laughs> I went I went chronologically. I was I was much better. Carry uh, okay. on. Um, but no, I just think it's a very good cool car. It was the that four liter completely silent V6 diesel. Um, made no noise at all one of the things that um stood out for me seeing it is that you just couldn't hear it you heard the tire noise and that was about in a rush of air and that was we also it. you could hear you the turbochargers yeah you could hear you, you could hear, hear the, the induction as well noise. yeah you could occasionally hear the hybrid when it pulling out of like the dunlop chicane that was quite cool again it just sounded like a I mean, from the future um but no, I just think it was a really cool-looking car. It was, again, like I said, the car I supported the first time I went to Le Mans, which always is something uh, slightly more emotive about that. Uh, and obviously, I knew Oliver Jarvis as well, who drove it um, to varying levels of, of success. Uh, but yeah, I just think it's just one of my favourite LMP1 cars of... Well, LMP1. Yeah, well, I mean, anything with an Audi badge on it and Le Mans is always going to be a good car. Apart from Absolutely. The yeah, which is why they've got their, well, yeah, as Sean says, apart from the R15, that's <laughs> why they've got their giant middle finger obelisk over the pit lane at Le Mans. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever seen it, tell me it does not look like a giant middle finger. <laughs> For those that don't know, at the top of the pit lane at Lamar, there's an elevated, essentially what's like a little shopping area and then stands. And there's this huge metallic obelisk which bends upwards from its base and it's got an Audi badge right at the top of it. I've never noticed that before. That's amazing. I'll find you some pictures of it after this, Monty. (laughs) Oh, no. Right, there we are. As good as the R18 e-tron quattro and its its other names were. It is technically, I think, the most the most defeated Audi of them all. It is. Yes, I think also. it was also up against the stiffest competition. Well, it was against any competition. <laughs> was, was yeah. yeah. 
Um, but it, it took that long for Audi to be beaten, let's face it. I mean, they started this in, in sort of what? With the, the R8 in, like, what, 2000, I think it was, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Um, and were more or less undefeated. Actually, they started in 1999. Of course, the um, the one four. That's the, the, that's the R8. No, they were R8. They were the R8R R8 and the R8C. That's it. I remember now. But um, Sam didn't say the R8R and the R8C. He said the R8. <laughs> so I did. So he said everyone's correct. Yet another car, which is confusing, because <laughs> you had the R8C, the R8R, the R8, and then the R8 became a road car. Yeah. And then the R8 became a race car. Just to confuse absolutely everything. Cheers, Ali. <laughs> Hashtag banter. Um, Hashtag Audi. So let's now move on to Sam's final choice. Last, last option. Now, this, I think, realistically, the reason I've picked this one is because it's kind of the epitome of... Sean's hatred. Everything <laughs> LMP1 ended up being... And it kind of was just the top of the tree in terms of development and general pace throughout its relatively short tenure at the top of the World Endurance Championship. And it's Porsche Porsche 919 Hybrid. Um, Obviously from LMP1. Debuted in 2014. um, Won the Constructors' Championship in 2015, 16 and 17. And the Drivers' Championship as well. 34 races, 17 wins, 43 podiums, 20 poles, and only four fastest laps. Um, and, in but, many, and in many yeah, ways, I, the reason that L, the LMP1 doesn't exist anymore today. Well, yes. no, the reason LMP1 doesn't exist anymore today, I think, is a combination of the Dieselgate scandal hitting the VW group because it took both Audi and Porsche out yes. and yeah. Nissan basically tripping over their own shoelaces and landing headfirst in a toilet. <laughs> that's, that's also true. <laughs> that's a good analogy. I like that. I mean, yeah, there's a reason none of us has discussed yet the GTR LM Nismo. And... Well, it's because Cree's not here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, I'm sure Cree will bring it up and... Are we going to be just... nice to him about the GTR LM this month? No. Absolutely not. It's not our fault that he can't choose good cars. It's much like we were with Sean, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's also a... Whatever. The, R9... the 919 is also a car I remember very intently for its win in 2016, which was arguably a win that Porsche lucked into. Arguably. Definitely. It also it the ultimate was... Toyota Toyota. <laughs> yes, but because they didn't just Toyota that one, they actually got the car disallowed or excluded from the race result because its last lap was too long. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Well, Lamar have a rule about the minimum lap time for the final lap you do of the race. I think it's one to avoid people just. I think it's to avoid people sending round cars that aren't race-worthy yeah. just to try and get the finish, mm-hmm. and two, to avoid people slowing dangerously round the last lap. But because the Toyota happened to break down after it across the timing line, its last lap was too long, and it actually finished as a non-classified car. Goodbye. Yeah, it, that was painful for all, and it was the weirdest atmosphere I've ever felt at Le Mans. And I mm. mean... 
this is a point where I know I'm getting slightly off track of the car, but for the Porsche team, I'd give them huge credit for their sportsmanship at the time, because publicly they were very complimentary towards Toyota at that race. It was so they were. I do remember. I do remember afterwards they were very much sort of we might have won this race, but we didn't really deserve to win it. We should have finished second or whatever whatever it was yeah and that's um, not for want of trying the 919 and the tso 40 that year if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. were no, locked in third, an intense first year of the 50 was it the first year of the 50 okay i couldn't quite remember off the top of my head but yeah they were locked in an intense battle and it was an incredible race and actually it leads me on to the next bit i wanted to say about the 919 which was the 2017 lamar which yes. is mm. an interesting event because it was the best way I can describe it is it was an old Lamar because it was a race where both Toyota and Porsche having had a close one in 2016 yeah 2016 I think they both realised they had to push the limit of technology even further they had to be on the absolute edge and as one might know, when you push things to their absolute limit, sometimes they can't stand it. And I seem to remember the hybrid systems on the 919s failed in 2017 a couple of times. And it was to the point that an LMP2 car was actually leading the race for several hours. Mm-hmm. And I think the Porsche won from a combination of less time in the pits and just tenacity on part the part of the team. It was one of those ones where you just had to not throw in the towel. Yeah, it was very much, a, uh, like you said, an old-style endurance race of we're just going to need to get this car to the end. Um, I mean, they, and, really, and they learned from Audi. Yeah, they kind of did, yeah. Took all the lessons. And, and I would imagine a few of the personnel well, from Audi yeah, the, pulled the, out this A lot of the drivers, of course, came from Audi beforehand. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah. It's one of those where... I think it was, if it had still been, it was when they pulled out at the end of 2017, it was still a winning car. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult to say how long that would have lasted, but you have to assume that they would have probably had at least a more, one more season, maybe two, of decent running at the front, battling maybe a bit closer with Toyota, but um, we won't know that, unfortunately, because Porsche pulled out. They didn't have to. I still stand by this. Porsche were very... Uh, when, when people said the Dieselgate scandal, it was very much on, on Volkswagen. I don't think that Porsche yes, were but... anywhere near as tainted. But of course, it does all come from the same purse, which is the problem. That's yeah, the problem, I, isn't it? It was it things behind the, the problem, scene though. rather than actually their Lamar efforts and even their road car brand that were damaging Porsche's chance at the time. It sure. was... Yeah, the way. To, but equally, you can say, you know, why, why, sort of bring some attention to yourself, some bad, more bad press to yourself, when you could have literally this because four, four, this four-cylinder engine. Yeah. Let's not forget that this car had four cylinders. It wasn't a V12. It wasn't a V8. It wasn't a diesel. It wasn't. It was a little four-cylinder turbo. It was amazing technology in that car. Because let's be honest, not as many people pay attention to motorsport as pay attention to the press. The news. Yeah, more people knew about what was going on with Dieselgate than what was going on at Lamar. But so you it wasn't. Find, 
you'll probably find as well, to be totally honest, we're looking at this from a motorsport fan point of view, where we go, brilliant, they've won Le Mans. As a, an eco person would have looked at that and gone, well, not only have they lied about their emissions, they're still burning it all doing racing. Yeah, Why are they doing that? That's my point, is that Porsche were quite detached as a brand. I would like to think Porsche wouldn't have been as connected as Audi would have been. Oh, Audi especially, because of their diesel cars at Le Mans and also what they did for America well they did with the whole the whole point of the R10 was pushing that diesels can be good in America that's why they took it to the ALMS mm. Porsche could if they really wanted to they could have done quite a similar trick with the media of going look how brilliant our little uh, inline 4 turbo V4, well, V4, V4. Yeah, sorry, but yeah V4. I it's, I don't think could. their board thought they could pull that at they the time they could have done it though it's it's again. It's, you it's try a, convincing the what Volkswagen Audi board of directors. It's of a that. what if. It always will be. Um, it always will be a what if. The the one big difference you have to consider between those two situations was by the time that Audi did go over to America to prove how great their diesels was, that was only after they had been doing the racing for about ten years. Porsche was still brand spanking new at that time, so I think they just wanted to establish themselves with the established industry really and the established competitors rather than trying to piss off the americans at the same time do you remember the backlash though from from the motorsport fraternity when porsche mm. did leave oh god yeah it was huge wasn't it because it, it, it only left toyota and everyone was like well mp1 is dead yeah they've killed the wec mm. which is the which at yeah. the time was growing and becoming the best series debatably in the world because f1 wasn't going brilliantly with its pr at the time no it, it left, left the door wide open there's, it's not Porsche's fault. It'd be unfair to just pin it. No, no, no. It's I, easy to I, to pin, they're, they're, to, to pin the blame the on Porsche. It's, it is. They were one of the dominoes, and I think people get really emotional about them leaving because of Porsche's historical significance within Le Mans. Yeah. The particular issue we were having, say, five years ago, was um, LMP1 was growing, but was it still relevant to what the industry needs were? Ditto with F1. No one really knew what was going on there, and I still question if what they're planning to do next year is uh, going to be relevant to the industry. But that's another matter for another day. You also had coming in there, you had Formula E, which was trying to prove to everyone, look, we're doing electric cars, and this is the future for the industry. All the manufacturers were wanting, they were practically creaming just to get into Formula E, because electric cars, everyone's wanting electric cars, this is what the government wants, etc., etc., in, in the real world. Then on top of all of that, you had uh, the whole autonomous driving thing going on as well. You had Tesla doing their self-driving cars. You had um, companies like NVIDIA wanting uh, and Dyson wanting to get involved with manufacturers for producing either electric cars or self-producing cars. Uh, sorry, self-driving cars. So LMP1 was, in my opinion, LMP1 was a growing class with a limited uh, output. It, it, it had a cap on it as to what its potential was because of what was changing around it. I think, yes, Porsche is a domino effect in its demise, but I wouldn't say it's Porsche's fault that they could see that their target market, that their customers, um, that the governments that they were having to be up against in, as far as they're concerned, the real world, what gets them their income, their actual products, was changing. And if they didn't see that LMP1 was um, relevant to any of their technology anymore, then they can't really be blamed for that. That's true. 
But what did also upset everyone was the fact that they they went they said oh we're leaving Le Mans and LMP1 due to cost grounds, but then mm. literally a year later they made the nine one nine what's it called the the super duper one, the Evo. So and, and, I'd point out that and they they then went to Formula E, which is hor- horrifically expensive. So the Formula E potentially the doing the nine one nine final edition going for some lap times. That is nowhere near as expensive as racing. No, no that was but it, but it when is... you were doing that, you needed one driver, you needed a little bit of R and D, and you needed a skeleton crew to run the car. But what you need to run there. a two or yes, but what you needed to do to run a two or three car, not just Le Mans, but a global endurance program, is huge in comparison to what I think that nine one nine final edition needed. Mm. Yeah, it was basically the last few engineers running it, wasn't it? To try and smash some lap records which they did and in uh, some ways it would actually be cheaper than uh, the actual car itself because they're not having to find loopholes and come out with uh, special exotic materials just to no, they uh, could just do whatever they wanted exactly they could just use whatever parts they had there lighten it a little bit more and off we go we'll, we'll show you exactly what this car was capable of if we weren't hindered by these limitations that was yeah, purely the thing a is, PR exercise yeah race cars are always built under weight so they just would have taken the ballast out. They would have known where they could add more power because at the time, the LMP1 cars used a fuel flow restriction formula, mm-hmm. which means yeah. there was probably loads more power they could get out of that engine just by purely removing the fuel limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they managed to get it the just the um, just the ICE, the V4, mm-hmm. up to 710 horsepower. It's a two-litre four-cylinder engine. It's just mad, isn't it? Again, though, the thing is, for an endurance car, it's not just about power, it's about how long it can do that for. That's the thing, isn't it? Whereas this was only made to do one fast lap. Well, yeah, to Al's point, that's exactly the problem that AER had with their engines. You know, they were very powerful, but they went bang every single race, so... Yeah. But let's let's go on a high. Let's remember, let's just... We all agree, the 919, as a engineering technical piece incredible fantastic yeah yes and it's also i think my i think it's one of the prettiest lmv1 cars no yeah no, it's... <laughs> don't push it sam the bike colors is horrific uh, face un- um, unfortunately sam because the porsche never had that strip of a neon yellow and whatever <laughs> shit that uh bike colors used to run uh sean will never agree that anything else will look as nice no about... i didn't that no, is I not mean... true because because the best looking lmp1 car ever is the rebellion r1 uh yeah, which I didn't I mean, pick. Funny, I should have done. <laughs> the, the no, no, I HDI fap anyone? Fap, 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 fap. <laughs> I think on that on that high note, we're gonna have to start closing it down. Um, we will. Who would like to go next? I think it should be Alistair because that's going to be a very eclectic list. But, uh, Absolutely. Is he, is he going to go for the re- the two hour record that we set with that F1 2017? Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, for that one, I think we should just leave Al to it. Yeah. <laughs> Sean can introduce it and then close it, and we'll just let Al talk. I'll, I'll just go to bed for like six hours, and he'll still yeah, be exactly. going. <laughs> How does that sound, Al? <laughs> I'm up for it. Cool. Um, in that case, guys, thank you very much for joining for Sam's choices. Sam, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. Mostly good choices. Mostly, yeah. All brilliant. What do you mean? I don't like. The, I don't like the courage. Well, 
tough. <laughs> um, You're wrong, Sean. Whatever. It wouldn't be the first time. Well, that's debatable. But that's the point. That's the joys of podcasts. Thank you very much for everyone for listening for this episode of the Savvy Auto Show. Um, thank you very much to Monty, Alan, Sam for joining me. Pleasure, as always, has been all yours. Uh, as uh, yeah, we've got the big highlight. It'll be Al next time, so make sure you join us for that. And I'm sure he will delve into his depths of every single nut and bolt that was different of <laughs> of, of of one car to another, and how they all morph into a they they all you scratch scratch off the uh, the VIN place, and they all turn out to be Jag XJ nines. Or... No, they all turn out to be TCRs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's either that or a Fiat Five Hundred. Yeah. That's going to do it. Take care, everybody. Take care and goodbye. 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 Goodbye.